0: I'm Skip Hapensy, here to tell you that you can listen to Booked on iTunes, Stitcher, Instacast, Podcast.com, the Zune Marketplace, and of course at BookedPodcast.com. Booked episodes are also broadcast live once a week from Clive Custer's submarine following his mud bath and laser hair removal treatments. Thank you.
1: Welcome to Booked,
2: where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Livia Nedden, And I'm Rob Olson. The book that we're reading tonight is Amped by Daniel H. Wilson. A little bit about the author. Daniel H. Wilson was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and earned a B.S. in computer science from the University of Tulsa. After earning a Ph.D. in robotics from Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, he moved to Portland, Oregon, where he has authored seven books, including Robopocalypse, which we reviewed in an earlier episode.
1: A little bit about the book, and this is from uh, from Goodreads. Technology makes them superhuman but mere mortals want them kept in their place. Enter a stunning world where technology and humanity clash in terrifying and surprising ways. Some people are implanted with upgrades that make them capable of superhuman feats. The powerful technology has profound consequences for society, and soon a set of laws is passed that restricts the abilities and rights of amplified humans. On the day the Supreme Court passes the first of these laws, 29-year-old Owen Gray discovers that his seizure-suppressing medical implant is actually a powerful upgrade. Owen joins the ranks of a new persecuted underclass known as AMPS and is forced to go on the run, desperate to reach an outpost in Oklahoma where, it is rumored, a group of the most enhanced AMPS are about to change the world, or destroy it. I tried to read that with as little... His little um, That's the word I'm looking for. Energy, like, you know, like really putting the emphasis on some of those words or destroy it. I try to as flat as possible. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Can I say just right out front um, before we get into too deep here? One of the things in the in the synopsis that is like righteously misleading (laughs) is where it says and is forced to go on the run, desperate to reach an outpost in Oklahoma where blah, blah, blah. He he gets to the outpost like by chapter three, doesn't he? Yeah, there's there's nothing about his, his trek to get there in the book at all. I guess you're right. Yeah, there's z- like zero suffering or danger on yeah, his trip. In, it takes in, like three pages. Yeah, he's in Philadelphia,
1: and he's like, I got to <laughs> go to Oklahoma. And then you flip the page, and he's like, I'm in Oklahoma <laughs> trying to make my way to this trailer park.
2: Yeah, he gets one ride from a trucker that gets him to within like, what, a four miles
1: yeah, yeah, but I think uh, he's like already in Oklahoma at that point, right? Like he's yeah. pretty much there. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't so, even catch
2: that, but you're right. <laughs> Shenanigans. Shenanigans. So anybody who if there was anybody who just from that synopsis was like, Oh well I'm sold because it's gonna it's really tough to get to Oklahoma <laughs> <laughs> Just be be warned be warned. <laughs> I'll wow, a way right. to kick this one off,
1: so um, <laughs> hopefully this is not an omen of things to come for the rest of the episode, but who knows. So that's a pretty almost accurate synopsis till you get to the Oklahoma part. Um, <laughs> we follow uh, Owen Gray, who one of us, um, notice, has the same last name as uh, Christian Gray from Fifty Shades of Gray. That's right. Yeah. So Did you want to claim claim that? That was me. Brilliant catching that we follow <laughs> Owen Gray who is a school teacher and I uh, hope we're not going to spoil anything here because this is chapter 1 before the the you know horrible trek to Oklahoma <laughs> uh-huh. he's responsible for this girl getting uh, an implant uh, when she's a child and he's a teacher he was her teacher and he's kind of stayed close to her and she kills herself because the pressure of being an amp and the she's like the the omen of what's to come you know she's smart enough to understand that it's only a matter of time before they're outcasts they're already kind of treated a little differently but that it's going to get much worse and she kills herself and that's what kicks off um owens trek to oklahoma i
2: guess yeah so essentially um like she has reached the tipping point the reason that she kills herself she's kind of reached the tipping point because i i believe like it was stated in the uh in this synopsis, the Supreme, Court, the Supreme Court passes a law that essentially says, more or less, that amped humans are not people. Like they're they're not capable of entering into contracts and blah blah blah. This whole thing, so it severely restricts the rights of of amplified humans. And to her, she sees it as like, well, this is the end. There's nothing left for us here, and that's what makes her jump. And she's trying to explain that to Owen, who doesn't think it's that bad for about another two pages. <laughs> and then he realized, oh, after she killed herself, he realized, oh, she's right. And uh, his life pretty much goes directly to hell. So the trip to Oklahoma is spurned by his
1: father, who is a surgeon that worked with implants um, and also is the the doctor who gave Owen his own implant. And, um, he basically sends him on his way to Eden because he thinks he'll be safer there, but that he can discover more about
2: Himself and his upgraded implant. So, really, the book, after just the first few chapters, is him in Eden and watching the the changes in, in the society. You know, we're we're seeing through newspaper clippings and blog posts and stuff that are kind of s- sprinkled throughout the book what's happening uh, in the United States that has to do with these amped people as far as their rights, laws being passed, you know, protests, violence, stuff like that. So he's in this place trying to, like, get his, like, Mr. Miyagi on, trying to figure out, like, like, uh, what his powers are and stuff like that while (laughs) we're seeing a little, like, you know, newspaper montage of all the crazy stuff that's going on in the world and, like, the worsening conditions for amps and stuff like that.
1: Um, I think I just discovered why you're not responsible for writing
2: synopses for, for books. All right, well, Jim is the guy he has to go visit, and like the first time he sees Jim, Jim's standing like on top of a trailer doing tai chi or something like that. So, like, you know, <laughs> okay, I, I can see why, I guess. But I anyway, know that's funny. Um,
1: to touch on a little bit about what Rob said is in between uh, chapters not always maybe i don't know but pretty frequently we start to get backstory and things that are going on in the rest of the world through um or in the rest of the country typically but through newspaper articles um reminiscent of i believe he had done some of that in world apocalypse as well
2: um yeah i think you're right
1: yeah yeah um which was an interesting way to be able to kind of backfill stuff without one or two ways to look at it it's either the lazy way to do it Or you're not taking up reader's time with, you know, why he has or why someone has to explain to him what's going on and and the background of the situation. It it was a neat and by neat, I mean, like very um, clean way to deliver a lot of information in one or two pages without having to burden the reader with. So now Owen's having a conversation with Jim, who just saw something on the news as Jim's explaining it to him. You know, it's just it's just a straight
2: delivery and and not a bad way to go about it. Right. Yeah. It's not character exposition. It's just straight up. Bam. Here it is. Which there I guess is fine. There it is. And Livia's actually noticed something in one of the uh, the newspaper clippings that I totally missed. So I'm going to I'm going to give you credit for it. I'm going to let you reveal it as well. Yeah, for, for fans of Robo-Apocalypse or anybody who very recently
1: listened to that episode, um, there's a lot of talk about Argos, which is the supercomputer that eventually um, you know, tries to defeat humanity by empowering robots to to do their own thing. And uh, in here is, is an interesting... <laughs> it's funny how you said that, sorry. Not, not enough Mr. Miyagi references in there. <laughs> Just go. Um, doc, was, so this is a line from the Washington Post in the book. Um, documents exposing the existence of the squad were leaked by an online coalition of hackers known as Arcos and published simultaneously by three collaborating newspapers. So that was uh, Daniel Wilson giving a shout out to his uh, his previous novel Robo Apocalypse, but I think a little more might be a, a loose tie into those you know, anonymous hackers just being the supercomputer Arcos that we talked about at length. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of just exp- you know trying to to you know.
3: Cause
1: a rift, man. Yeah, yeah, stir up trouble so
2: it's easier for the robots to take over, which I totally didn't catch. But, um, I wish I had because, like, that probably would have made me, you know, like it. I love, like, we were talking to Craig Clevenger about, uh, you know, doing character crossovers or book crossovers and stuff. And I always think that it, you know, amplifies the experience. See what I did there, and uh, uh, (laughs) I saw it it coming, yeah, you did. Um, So I'm kind of sad that I missed that one.
1: Yeah, it was interesting. And, and you know, when I first read it, I was like, oh, he's the same man. And I started thinking about it. I was like, man, this is a tie. so maybe the next book we review by him will bring that all together.
3: Hmm.
2: Probably not. Yeah, back to a little bit about the story. You want to talk about the characters a little bit? <sighs> you got Owen Gray, who is a billionaire guy who meets this girl. In ca- oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Um, Owen Gray is a teacher. Uh, whose father is a surgeon, conveniently, who, you know, was was one of the people who uh, was there at the beginning of these uh, these implants and everything and thought he had an implant that just kept him from – and he, he remarked at it at length about how he was one of those boring people who just had an implant that um, only rectified like a physical problem. It didn't enhance him in any way, which should have been just straight up foreshadowing that that's definitely not the case. Um, but I kind of believed him (laughs) a little bit and he ends up being like the, the person that people are saying, Oh, we think you're here for a reason. We think you're coming to Eden because you have something that you need to do here, that type of thing. So, um, he ends up being kind of the chosen one in a way, I guess. The, um, antagonist
1: in the book is, uh, Lyle who has the same implant that Owen does but it was put into him years previously uh, as part of the Echo team that was mentioned in that little line I read about the Arcos computer, the Echo Squad. Uh, there were a group of 12 soldiers that did the government made into super soldiers using these, these implants, and their implants are way beyond anything that a, a normal amp can do. So their implants tie into their... Every physical move and thought. So at one point, you know, at some point, they can actually react without thinking, and they're programmed basically for battle and
2: evasion
1: and, and that type of thing.
2: Yeah, and uh, did you say? Oh, Lyle? I should
1: probably I should probably say something else about Lyle. <laughs> um, Lyle is king of the king of the Eden Trailer Park. I guess he's like kind of crazy and has a lot of tattoos, and uh, he he is the biggest proponent for amps, but not necessarily in a really good way more in a um we're better than than regular humans are and we need to be treated as such Is he's the
2: yeah it, it to make a true blood analogy he's like the russell edgington character yeah. like the 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 king of mississippi who's just like you know these are you know these people are essentially like our you know below us that kind of thing and he is, uh, you know, the the further
1: catalyst in this story. So it's it's his ideas and his interactions with Owen that really cause, you know, the, the remaining you know, 50,
2: 60% of the story to occur. So the head of kind of the force, the guy that's causing all the trouble for the amps is, uh, is a guy named Senator Joseph Vaughn. And um, he's this like super conservative. He's kind of, depicted as a super conservative guy who thinks that amps are not humans and um, that technological implants in people is taking the humanity out of people and that it needs to be stopped and that, you know, he, they're basically ruining uh, humanity by, by doing all these enhancements to people. So he's the one that's pushing for all these changes and everything and oppressing the amps and... um there's really not much more about him. He's kind of the guy that you just keep seeing that uh that's um, pushing things along. That's really all I can say of I mean, he's kind of a flat character, but he really serves a purpose to be like the figurehead for everything that's that's uh bad that's happening with the imps. Yeah, he's he's the
1: guy who was defeated for, you know, in, in the you know, women got the right to vote and you know, black people got equal rights and then gays and lesbians could marry. So he's basically the guy who's, you know, just moved on. To. He's, he's that same guy that's been, the you know, not literally in the book, but he's that guy who's speaking out against people who are different. And he's very, um, very cookie cutter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, in that way, like, if like, I were to sit down and write a story and there was this character who would come off exactly like Joseph Vaughn, and that would be the same for just anybody that would write that guy. So I don't know a lot about politics, but I'm sure there's probably a politician out there right now that seems just like Joseph Vaughn.
2: Rick Santorum.
1: There you go. So I only see tweets about Santorum,
2: and they always have him doing really, really foul things. So <laughs> He's the guy that said that uh, homosexuality is the same as... Bestiality or like incestuous rape? He he's kind of an idiot. Wow, yeah, but see that's that's there's your there's your Joseph Bone. So there there goes one less. We got one less listener now that Rick Santorum's going to hear this and be like, ah, I can't listen to my favorite book podcast anymore. Um, other characters, um, Lucy and Nick, uh,
1: who are I lump them together because they're they're. pretty much interchangeable
0: um, <laughs> Wow Lucy
1: is Lyle's sister who's uh, who's the hottie that lives at Eden that uh, immediately upon seeing her Owen falls head over heels in love with Nick is her um, uh, the unofficially adopted son yeah probably the most interesting character in the book in my opinion in that he is uh, he's a boy who was uh, had fetal alcohol syndrome and I believe he was autistic right is that what the actual condition was sure. So he's uh, he's he suffers for some physical deformities, um, but they gave him this implant. And the thing about implants is, they can cure conditions like autism and, and mental conditions. The problem is that they are never like dialed down. There's you know these these kids are smarter, they're sharper, they're you know not necessarily geniuses, but they advance faster and, and better than other children. Um, and Nick is. Uh, Lives at Eden and doesn't have a lot of friends, and of course, no normal kids will go near him. Not only because of his deformity, but because of his implant his his amp that he has. Uh, I thought he was kind of an interesting character, based on how insightful he was. Now, granted, you know, when you're reading a book, you have to assume that what you're reading is kind of factual. So, you know, he's very insightful for a nine year old, but you know, it was written by an adult man. But as a character, he just came off (laughs) as very insightful. He also came off as more genuine. Um than I think more genuine than Owen
2: and, and you know other characters in the book, yeah, yeah, the only yeah Nick was probably my favorite character in the book and the only complaint they have about the Nick character is like every now i mean like his his kind of gimmick was that he would he would solve Rubik's cubes like mm-hmm. profoundly quickly, and it was such a crutch for that character that. Wilson couldn't write a goddamn scene without Nick playing around with a Rubik's Cube. And I was like, I get it. You know, the kid's smarter than he should be. He doesn't have to play with a Rubik's Cube every goddamn scene. Never, never figured out a year, Rubik's Cube, huh? Oh, it's not like a jealousy thing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Fuck that kid in his <laughs> Rubik's Cube.
2: All right, that's why. You're
1: right. if, if you listen closely to some episodes, <laughs> you hear a clicking. Sometimes that's Rob with a Rubik's Cube. Dry. He's like, I've got two sides.
2: It's like click, click, sniff, click, click, sniff.
1: Um, I hesitate when I said he was the most genuine character in the book because Vaughn, although being flat, also came across as just a very genuine, hateful guy. Like He was believable as that guy, and that's the point I was trying to make earlier. So He was the best developed, I think, yeah. Um, and like I said, Nick is uh or Lucy is his uh his you know adoptive mom and uh doesn't really do much for the story. Uh she's a motivation for Owen, but as herself
2: as a character is probably as flat as Joseph Bond. She serves there's this one beautiful moment with Lucy where, you know, for you're reading through the book and you're like, What's you know, what's her deal? What's she here for? Is like she just is she is she just here for um like, window dressing or something, or so that we can think about a woman or, you know. And then there's this moment where, like, uh, Owen's starting to learn about his uh, his implant and how to use it and everything. And she gives him this, like, magical back rub that brings him back to, like, normal. <laughs> and he's like, oh, how did you know how to do that? And she said, I've had practice because her brother has the same thing. And really, like, that's the only standout moment with her is her mm-hmm. giving, like, some sort of weird, you know, unamping magical like shoulder rub uh, and you know and I'm kind of jumping out of out of you know
1: our, our rhythm here but there's a scene and you know I I'm not, don't think I'm spoiling anything There there's a scene where they're both taken into custody and uh Nick has basically gotten her to agree to a date you know under all this pressure of <laughs> you know police are going to show up or whatever which can be done okay <laughs> that's how I get that's
2: how I get dates too
1: yeah and and, uh as they're like handcuffed and being dragged to separate cars they're still doing like the flirty dating kind of thing
2: (laughs) yeah that's true
1: it just it it didn't fit with the book there's one of my favorite authors is richard layman and one of the things and and it's enjoyable in his books because you just expect it but yeah the characters are always way too happy about in the middle or just after a really traumatic situation but it's
2: almost endearing there and here i just thought it was kind of just unrealistic yeah it's like put it away owen Really, a couple other things I want to talk about really quickly are some of the. I mean, obviously, the themes, the big themes in the book are, are um, you know, being deprived of rights and and uh, the limits of you know what to be con- what would be considered a you know, a human when you know. When you start enhancing someone with mechanical parts and stuff, how does that change their humanity? Blah blah blah, and there's a straight up reference at one point to, uh, the story slash eventually made into a novel uh, Flowers for Algernon at the beginning actually when that girl uh, is about to commit suicide and she's kind of arguing with Owen um, she says you think this is an Algernon syndrome and then she goes on to talk a little bit more but um, Flowers for Algernon for anybody who isn't aware of it is essentially a a story about it starts out with uh, uh, experiments with lab mice um, who have these surgeries to make them smarter and eventually, it's done on a test subject that's a human named Charlie Gordon, and um, so he—he he was, as far as I wear, I actually haven't read it, but as far as I'm aware, Charlie's essentially like a—he's got a low IQ, he's mentally challenged, he's, um, and and he takes this, uh, he gets this surgery or whatever it is, uh, and becomes really intelligent, but as the story goes on it reaches a point where he starts to realize that the intelligence is going away. And that's the whole tragedy of it is like um, he gets this intelligence and it goes away and everything. And so um, there's a total reference to flowers for Algernon, which brings up the idea of like, you know, using science to, to, to enhance us and the, and the the risks and the emotional, you know, you know uh, things that are, that are tied in with that as well. Yeah, I I think one of the misses
1: um, in this book was the fact that he didn't show us that downside to being an amp. I mean, the downside was, you know, people treat you poorly. But I don't really think that they reflected that there could be a downside.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, like like
1: uh, an emotional downside other than outside of being a social outcast. Right. Exactly. So you mentioned some of the overall themes and, um, you know, being deprived of rights, as we mentioned earlier. Um, one of the first things that's done is that they're, they're told that amps can't um, sign contracts for anything. So, you know, there's people being kicked out of their homes and, you know, now they're being fired. And basically the way the public has taken this is that since they can't sign like any type of legal and binding contract, but they're not protected by any kind of law and, you know, they're just treated poorly and fired. And, um, you know, Owen comes home in the middle of his stuff getting thrown out. And, you know, Rob said something earlier that I have to disagree with a little bit. When you had said that it was real convenient that his dad was the surgeon, that I thought was kind of integral to the story because if his dad wasn't the surgeon, there wouldn't have been the bonus implant, there wouldn't have been all the other stuff. But there were some convenience issues like the girl dies, he immediately goes to see his father. There's like a big thing that happens there, right? When he's there and he goes home as he's being evicted, like so, there were a lot of convenient things that were happening way too conveniently, you know, in that whole you know Mm -hmm. circle of story um but i and i guess i got sidetracked but that whole being deprived of rights, so um they have no rights uh this has i don't think there's really a historical instance in the united states where we started depriving people of rights i think that they basically didn't have rights for a long time and that was more the oppression my
2: so right like it was well i mean unless you want to Unless you want to talk about the Native Americans who, before we, you know, yeah, well, that would be before it was the United States of America. <laughs> All right. Well, now we're just splitting hairs, but I, yeah. but otherwise, yeah, it's always like the like African Americans came over as slaves, and were are basically told they didn't have rights until someone gave them them that type of thing. Is that what you mean? Right, yeah, I mean, I don't think we've ever gone
1: into, in, I mean, I guess, you, you're right, you split in hairs, I mean, apparently during World War II, there were some concentration camps, or not, I'm sorry, not concentration camps,
0: <laughs> God
2: damn it. Oh, uh, great, Livius is a Holocaust denier. Yeah, no, there were, um, what were they called, the Japanese people? The internment like, camps. Internment camps, there you go. <laughs>
1: Um, there were some internment camps, so I guess that would be one example of where we took away right so I guess maybe there is a historical reference of the United States to something like that. I guess I was wrong with my original thought
2: <laughs> yeah well and, and they made uh, they actually made a reference to the Japanese internment camps, I think in the book, didn't they or no? I don't think they did or or I, at I, the I, very I, least or it didn't mean anything to me when I read it <laughs> at the very least the 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 camps that they eventually established. Uh, under the guise of it being a protection for, amps, um, strongly resembles the kind of stuff that went down in World War Two for Japanese Americans. Anyway so the question, the question then is: in modern times, where we're looking at
1: expanding the rights of people whose rights are being, you know, deprived, they're being deprived of these rights. <clears throat> do you think there's ever likely a scenario where the United States would
2: go this route? That's the thing that I thought was toughest to swallow with this book, is that um, essentially with one very quick, like, Supreme... And it's the Supreme Court. It's not even like a law was passed. It was the Supreme Court making a decision on something. Suddenly, it's like night and day. It's like, you know, at one point, these amped people may have been distrusted or, you know, misunderstood or whatever, but the Supreme Court makes one decision and suddenly... They're just these horrible, like, non-persons, which uh, it seemed like there could have been, at the very least, a better build-up. He could have fleshed that out a little bit better, I think, but uh, there's your convenience, you know? Like, with one quick decision, you know, the plot is, is up and running. I, I don't think that we'd actually see that. It would be very, very difficult to actually have something like that happen in in real life. I I, I think it's the biggest problem with the book and then that's kind of the point I was trying to get at I,
1: I agree I didn't think about it being convenient until you just said it which fits into with some of the other things we were saying about his his storytelling um, I was looking for like where's Jesse Jackson where's the ACLU I mean eventually at one point towards the latter or towards the end of the book really there's a group that comes up that you know says hey these people are still human and they have rights but there was that lack of protesting the discrimination against amps that I would think would be, you know, pretty prevalent mm-hmm. as, you know, just based on things we see today and people are protesting all kinds of things all the time or defending somebody's right or, you know, being proponents for someone getting more rights or, or whatever. And it's deathly silent through the whole book. There was it's- no opposition to Joseph Vaughn's,
2: you know, movement to, to alienate amps. Especially when you consider the fact, and it just occurred to me right now, that the way that these implants were were introduced and it was emphasized throughout the book is they were for children who were either disabled in some way or uh, developmentally behind the average child. And so it's essentially the majority of the people with these implants are like children, Right. If I got no, that right,
1: it started that way. So, but it
2: expanded to life-threatening conditions and stuff too. It's not like a genetic thing, like you know, African Americans. Your whole family's African American, so it's easy to, you know. Well, I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, one person that's an amp is not going to have an entire family of amps. Their parents are not going to be amps. Their aunts and uncles might not be amps. You know, there might be some, but like, you've got this built-in familial love that's gonna cause you to want to stand up against these these laws and stuff it's it's the um like um breast cancer awareness
1: plenty of the people who go on the marches have a name of a loved one that they're you know so i i I didn't think about that either but i see what you're saying is that yeah for every household that has an amp there should be one to three four or five people that would jump to to create a group to protect amp rights.
2: Right, they're not just going to be like oh Billy, sorry, you know, you were blind and we got you an amp, but now you're not a person so you have to go, you know, sleep in the doghouse Well, it was funny too because the way he he brings this to to forth is
1: that a lot of it was government subsidized, so a lot of poor people got Mm -hmm. the benefit of this, And, and I think that again the convenience there is if rich people are doing something, they have the money to defend themselves Um, If poor people are doing something, they don't. And so he made it in such a way that it's basically only poor people, or at least the people he shows us are all poor, and they do make mention of a lot of times it was the downtrodden that received these amps. So again, perhaps that's convenience, because I would think with technology like that, and okay, so it's a government program, but like rich people have autistic kids too, and that they would just pay for even better amps because they have millions of dollars. I mean, that would be the, you know, so... In some cases, I could see where it'd be a lot of people who are underprivileged. So, okay, so let's assume that a very rich, rich family, you know, probably doesn't wind up with a kid with fetal alcohol syndrome because, you know, there's people around to, to protect that child even during the, the pregnancy stages. Um, you know, so, okay, so they, that's a poor people thing,
2: but I, it just, it seemed... God, the more we talk about this book, the more holes there are in this plot. <laughs> and there would be vanity amping. like if, if So if it's the poor kids that are getting amped up and suddenly they're better than the not poor kids, the other parents are just going to be like, well, screw this, I'm going to get a better amp. I'm going to amp my child up beyond that amp. Yeah. So, yeah, there's some, there's some problems
1: <laughs> there. But, yeah, one of the biggest ones I just thought throughout the whole book was who's defending the amps and why aren't they? I mean, there's people defending you know, all kinds of things. So, you know, these are definitely human beings. They were not... Uh, the, with the exception of Lyle and, and his group of uh, echo squad or whatever they were called and eventually as you find out Owen um these people were in full control of their faculties and there were parts where you know some of the super amps these these particular 13 that got this modification where you know the amp could take over if they allowed it to just to get them through a situation or over a situation you know but everybody else full control of their
2: faculties right and and Letting the amp take over for these for these thirteen special people was referred to throughout the book as going whole hog. So if you were to let the amp do the maximum amount that it could do, you were going whole hog. That just sucked. Um, <laughs> I, I, I didn't like that term at all. It seems so stupid to me. It, it is, but then it came from Lyle, who was the cowboy
1: is how he's referred to. The laughing cowboy the laughing cowboy so i mean it from that standpoint kind of because he's the one that introduces it and when he of course he teaches or introduces this uh, concept to owen owen is going to refer to it as how it's taught to him so i mean but yeah it's a little silly and maybe a little overdone that was really cool that he had a bunch of crows tattooed all over his body though (laughs) i'll give you the crows okay one other thing I want to address before we get on to quotes and a wrap up is um, is writing, and one of the reasons is it was such a stark contrast to Rail C, uh, which we reviewed last, where I thought the story was really just not that great, um, but the writing was terrific and as I was reading AMP it's, it's a very easy to read through book and, and it does bring up some interesting concepts and you know but the writing was completely different, so as much as I could you know applaud. Mayville for his, you know, great writing. Um, this is just really flat, and, and it was it was like that. Like you hear those things, like the average whatever is written for like the fourth grade level. This was like the fourth grade level writing.
2: I think you're right. Now that I didn't thought about it, but it's just very basic. And and I think the one thing that will save it for most people who who aren't thinking too deep about it, like if it's like a beach read for them is that it's um it's very cin- cinematically written so um what it lacks in depth or, or like creative descriptions of things it, it just makes up for in the fact that like it reads like a movie i guess so i mean it's going to be for for a light reader who just wants some you know quick action and a decent story they'll be like oh this book is great because it you know you could see it like you'd see a movie playing out and i don't think that was
1: accidental i think we said the same thing about robopocalypse that this was written just waiting for the movie
2: rights to be purchased which <laughs> before we started recording livius said robopocalypse and it sounded like he said robocopocalypse which i think would be a much better story than robopocalypse if robocop was back and sometimes he was like you know responsible for the end of the world or something david james keaton get on that that. We partner up with Julian. He's got some experience in the RoboCop uh, <laughs> arena. That's true. We have a full-on RoboCop. Oh, man. We can do this. Let's make this happen. So, Peter Weller well, is still I'm, alive.
1: Before we make our bazillion dollars off of this
2: RoboCop <laughs> apocalypse idea, um, how about we do some quotes? Uh Cool. I'm going to kick it off with a really quick one-liner, an early-on impression that Owen has about Nick, the the, the kid that I think is probably one of the coolest characters in the book. Uh, just really quickly. I follow still sleepy, bemused by this hyperactive little creature, which now that I think of it, him calling him a little creature is kind of weird considering he's one of the oppressed people as well. But I know it's just a, it's a, it's an affectionate term, but it seems like a weird timing. <laughs> I didn't think about that, but yeah, that is, that is kind of an interesting, but,
1: um, this is, uh, not so. I. This is more to introduce what I thought was a, was a great idea. I mean, I thought that this was put together pretty well. But um, so amps have this this node that's put into their temple. Uh, is and that has to be maintained. And that's kind of the reason why it's there is because it has to be lubricated and checked every so often. I and mean, bad things will happen if you don't do it. But one of the big concepts throughout the book is that because of this, you are easily easily identified as an amp because you have this this node sticking out of your head and uh, one of the things I thought he did wonderfully was he said that you know during these demonstrations and during these, these big speeches that are anti-amp speeches that people who aren't amps would very clearly make sure that you could see both of their temples so everyone would know that they're not an amp, which I thought was a genius idea and I could totally see that if this were the future of people you going out of their way, so women would wear their hair tucked back behind their ears, so you could see that they're not trying to hide the fact that they're an amp. So this takes a place. Owen has seen uh, the the last of a speech, an anti-amp speech that the senator uh, Vaughn gives. In a final orgy of applause, the rally moves on. The smiling faces and unblemished temples march out of the park, singing, headed headed downtown for the next stop. They leave behind muddy footprints crumpled flyers and tiny plastic American flags, the litter of Patriots.
2: Can I point out, I'm looking at my notes right now. And as much as we said, the writing wasn't great. I want to say it's better than Robo apocalypse. I felt like it was an improvement and maybe it's just me only remembering the bad. <laughs> I, I think, you know, and, and it may come up on the show from time to time,
1: but you and I slam Robo in private a lot. <laughs> if we really and and I think that that book may now in our minds be worse than it really was after how many times we referred to it
2: as a comparison on a book. It's our fish story. Yep. This is a quote uh, Lyle talking to Owen early on about being an amp and what it means and everything. And he says, there's one thing that regulars know deep down and it scares the shit out of them. Being an amp don't make you any less human brother. Being an amp makes you more human which immediately brings Rob Zombie into my head. Dude, I was I thought you were channeling Hulk Hogan there for a second. Brother.
1: <laughs> um, the scene takes place pretty early on in the book and it's basically when Owen is starting to realize that he was wrong and things have gone horribly bad. It's all on little pieces of paper. Thou shalt not, thou shalt. The rules are there so that we can remember them and follow them. If the rules were obvious, we
2: wouldn't have to write them down. There it is. Apparently, the only person I thought was interesting in this book was Lyle, because this is another Lyle quote talking to uh, um, Owen again. Look at us, amps. We're morons smarter than Lucifer, cripples stronger than gravity, a bunch of broke-ass motherfuckers stinking rich with potential. This is our army, our people, strong and hurt. We're the wounded supermen of tomorrow, Gray. It's time you got yourself healed. New world ain't gonna build itself, and the old world don't want to go without a fight. I think he put a lot of thought into the uh, to the Lyle character mm-hmm. as far as what he was going to say and everything and just kind of built everything else around that. Yeah, he he has to be the catalyst
1: for the, the bad side of Amps, um, much like in the X-Men. You had you know, you Charles Xavier and then you had Magneto. Mm-hmm. He's definitely the Magneto, and he has to be convincing because
2: he has to lead the uprising against the, the reggies, the regular people. Yeah, that's true. It is a harder sell when you're crazy. Yeah, that makes sense. What do you got? I
1: have a quote from Nick in uh, this kind of, I'd forgotten about this quote, but it kind of touches back on something I'd said about earlier about the government providing these. And uh, he says he's having a conversation with, with Owen. You mean the government cheese? Nick points at the yellowish nub on his temple. They came and gave these yellow ones to everybody around here. And then they all, they got all mad at us for having them. Pretty stupid.
2: That's a good one. I like that. I've got two that I'm gonna put back to back, because one's an example of what I think was probably the better writing in the book, and the other one is just really stupid. So here's the better one first. The front stoop of the house next door leans at a vertiginous vertiginous, like vertigo, vertiginous angle, permanently italicized by rot and the elements. I was like, yeah, I could really see what he's talking about when he said that. And then this next one. I'm not even gonna explain it, I'm just gonna I'm gonna read it and, and maybe Olivia's will have a nice reaction. Camps where amps are separated and regulated. Is that from the homeless guy at the end? No.
1: Okay. I thought uh, that might have been there there's a homeless character towards the end who has an amp, so he's like he's like the very <laughs> stereotypical like black homeless guy but he's super smart. So he just talks with all these big, big words. And I thought that maybe what it might have been, uh, one of his,
2: no, I think kind of it's cleverish lines. No, it's actually Owen said that when he was talking to, to Lucy at one point toward the end of the book. But, uh, I was going to mention, and I forgot to that, that, that bum, uh, was such a cool idea because like, like Livia said, a lot of poor people got these amps and stuff or became amps, which, which led to this hilarious situation where there's bums, who are like the smartest people in the world. I thought that was great. <laughs> All right. Anything else you want to talk about before we start throwing stars at this thing? Let's do some wrap-ups. We've been talking about this book way too long. All right, let's do it. You go first. I want to start this by saying I didn't like Robo-Apocalypse. And and like I said, or like we said, I don't remember who said it, uh, in the previous episode when we announced we're going to be reading this, you know, this was like our... Giving him a second chance, and and I think that's important. Like to to you know not judge someone by just one thing, um, but to give him a chance to, you know, maybe find the thing that they did that you like or whatever. D- it didn't happen. <laughs> I I think that there were improvements on this book in as far as we don't know if he was directly ripping something off, like he like he was with Rob Apocalypse and World War Z. Um, and I know I'm being really harsh right now, and I, I probably shouldn't be so harsh. I, I think there was, like I said, improvements. It read better, but overall it was pretty stale and flat. The the concepts that he introduced, the whole flowers for Algernon thing, being deprived of your rights. There was a lot of very deep um, social issues that he brought to the book, and he just put no emotion or conflict or or consequence to any of it which was a pretty disappointing when in the in the end and I can't talk about you know how it ended or what happened or anything but in the end it was just like some it, it was like a flashy action movie that that plot was secondary or, or you know tertiary to, to the action and and you know the the main bad guy and stuff like that. so um, I'm finding out I didn't like this book. More than I thought I didn't like it. <laughs> so I'm going to give it, a, I'm giving it two, I like think two stars. I, uh, that was a really quick read.
1: It was definitely better than Robo Apocalypse. Uh, this actually, one of the differences in this and Robo Apocalypse is it really focused on one character and didn't skip around and it didn't have a singing robot lover.
2: Oh, God, I forgot about that. <laughs> so.
1: Um, you know it it was all first person you know perspective and you know I I thought it read pretty quickly the concept was kind of interesting Um, it it requires a suspension of your disbelief uh, not in the way that you know watching Star Wars does but in that way of you know you kind of have to look the other way on where's the ACLU where what's going on you know Um, where's the protection for these people it's just that kind of stuff is lacking the characters nick was the only really good character although i did like lyle and his craziness um what the things i think wilson did well the small things like he's got this idea and he has really great ways of vigilating it so okay lyle was covered in these crow tattoos it's a great visual there's all these people with these nubs in their head which isn't a great visual but it becomes a great visual when he talks about the other people who show off their clean you know temples so i thought he did a lot of that really well uh, the writing was okay. I think, like Rob said, in going back through the quotes, I realized that there's some actually some pretty good writing in here, but it's still not something you're going to read for, for its prose. It's definitely 100% story-driven, and you're not going to get anything out of reading it for you know sentence structure or word usage or anything like that. Um, unfortunately, much like Rob, too, um, this was three stars until we recorded this episode, <laughs> bouncing ideas off one another and stuff. Um, originally I read it and I was like, this is okay. I mean, I, I maybe some of that was I expected worse because I hated Apocalypse. I was like, I don't, I don't think this is as bad as Roboapocalypse so I've got to rate it higher. Um, I'm, I'm in the same boat. This, this, t- during the course of this episode, Rob convinced me that this is definitely a, a two star and not a three, which is what I was thinking it was going to be
2: going into this episode. Oh, whole hog, whole hog. Um, what would you pay for it?
1: Um this is a this is a 499 book. <laughs> that was quick and easy, wasn't it? This is a beach read. This is the perfect read, you know what? You got 3 or 4 hours to kill, you can tear through this book. Um you know, you're not going to have to stop and think about things, there, you know, there are some bigger concepts, uh, the deprivation of rights, but all in all it's a quick read. It, it's the kind of book that somebody who doesn't read a lot would want to read on an airplane on
2: their way somewhere. I'll go with you there. 499. It's like uh, it's it's the type of all right. So I've got my guilty pleasure kind of um, TV shows and stuff that I watch. Like I'll I'll watch an episode of Ghost Hunters every now and then, just like you know, because like it happens to be on TV and I don't feel like looking for something else. Um, and I know it's stupid and I don't really like the show, but I'll just watch an episode, you know, just to have something on. And uh, that's kind of <laughs> that's kind of where this falls. Like I, yeah, it's kind of a beach read, like a not thinker kind of book. So. I think 4 would be, yeah, uh, I guess would be reasonable for this book. Um, you realize
1: what we do when we do that. Like, Rail C was twelve ninety nine, I think. I think this is just $11.99. Like, we're just telling people, like, you just don't want to buy it because it's never going to be 5 bucks.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah. I guess, yeah, we're not really doing much of a service by saying don't pay what it's, you know, being sold for.
3: <laughs>
2: yeah. I don't know. There's just... A there's just more thought-provoking
1: books out there or, or books that, you know, even Rail C, even though they're both two-star books for me, this was much faster, so it's nice because I didn't feel like I like I was burdened with reading it, which is kind of how I felt about Rail but Rail was much more beautifully written from a prose
2: standpoint, and this just doesn't deliver. Okay, but look at it like this then. So, like, instead of buying it, check it out from the library so you don't have to have regrets for spending your money on it or uh, wait till it's in paperback or something so that you can save little no, cash or wait till the the kindle price goes down so um I, you know it's not something you have to rush out and read because it's the but it's not a strangeness in the proportion it's a it's something you can kind of wait wait it out and wait till it's cheaper yep it's a robo apocalypse yes exactly <laughs>
1: not not to be confused with our new hit show robo cop apocalypse <laughs> coming soon before we move on to other pressing urgent news matters um, some of them are a couple weeks old we just haven't gotten around to them yet. gotten um, give you some really more updated news and here's uh, skip papersley with another installment of book news
0: this is book news i'm skip papersley this week on book news and june 15th cnn ran a story with the headline 50 shades of confused why do people like this book normally i would make a joke here but frankly i'm a little upset that cnn is stealing my bit so instead i'll just sing I would walk 500 miles and I would walk 500 more Just to be the man who walked 5,000 miles To fall down at your door Now, the New York Times and bestsellers in Fiction recap Mary Kay Andrews' book Spring Fever springs in at number 5 Clive Cussler's latest book The Storm gets blown to number 4 the number three spot is taken by John Grisham's Calico, Joe Y. or why, for the love of God, is this still happening? Gillian Finn's Gone Girl shows up at number two. And the number one book is Kiss of the Dead by Laurel K. Hamilton and is about boning vampires. I guess that's what it takes to be number one, right, CNN? This has been Book News. I'm Skip Papersley signing off.
2: All right, and once again, that was Skip Papersley doing book news. I really love the fact that we've got Skip doing book news. Like, it's it's definitely one of my favorite things. Not only because it's so funny uh, consistently, but also because it's a minute and a half that I don't have to do myself. Convenient. Very convenient, Rob. <laughs>
1: You're just like Mr. Wilson. That's right. So this is news that's, I don't know, probably... Eight or 10 days old, but I saw it pop up again online in something, and it's just uh, Oprah's book club is back from the dead. Oprah Book Club 2.0. So, for those of you who are not familiar with the original Oprah Book Club, um, between 1996 and 2011, Oprah had handpicked allegedly. 70 books for her wildly popular book club so what this meant was uh, sometimes they, well, I think they were always mentioned on the show at least like the reveal like this is the new Oprah book club book they got a seal on them it said Oprah book club right on the front like top right hand corner real big and like gold or something so it was very very eye catching
2: do you remember these yeah oh yeah yeah okay. um, I think Skip I, has mentioned them once or twice in uh, in the book news too there you go
1: me, that was always like a big neon sign that said, don't read this book. So I was very thankful that uh, that it had him on there. So it was it was a good like i like <laughs> that's an interesting name for a book. Oh, wait, there's the Oprah book club seal on it. I'm not going to pick that up and look at it. That's why uh, that's why I didn't read that James Frey book. There you go. Well, and then you would have found out that, you know, I didn't understand that whole thing. Did we have we talked about this on the show
2: before? I know you and I have talked about it. The million tiny pieces thing where i think yeah. we talked about it we've referred to it and and kind of touched on it very very lightly i just don't get how
1: it's less of a good book because it's n- so you read a story and you thought it was a great story until you found out it wasn't true now it's a crappy story yeah i just don't understand that it's it's yeah it's people thinking that they got duped i agree with you yeah. so at any rate this is back from the dead, um, which could be, it's, it's good news for me because then there's some warning signs, um, but it could be good news for the book industry because the 70 titles in her first book club totaled um, 55 million copies sold, and I'm sure that a ton of that is attributed almost directly to the Oprah book club seal.
3: Yeah.
2: You just said club seal. <laughs> oh, my mind's all over the place today. Who it you might just wait, <laughs> you just wait for these moments, don't you? Like, uh, yeah. Um, who it might not help, uh, however, is independent publishers, and there are a couple that we've noticed recently that are sadly shutting their doors for good. Um, Other World Publications uh, is closing their doors at the end of 2012, and uh, the reason that that came came up to us is that uh, they've published several authors that have been on our radar inclu- or radar uh, including Richard Thomas they published Transubstantiate which we uh, gave a shout out about early on uh, they published Nick Corpon's Stay God which uh, we've at the very least talked about I don't think we reviewed it but we, we did talk about it a little bit and they published Brandon Tietz's Out of Touch which um, is Brand- now, now out of print <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Brandon was published in uh, Warmed and Bound, the anthology that we talked about at length uh, last year.
1: Yeah, and then uh, a literary magazine, Vane, um, also closing its doors. And uh, what these two have in common? Richard Thomas.
2: <laughs> That's <the laughs> So maybe it's not Oprah. Maybe it's Richard Thomas. Richard Thomas closing publishers like it's his job. Well, here's what it is. Uh, positive spin they're like, well, we've published Richard Thomas. We can't possibly go above that. So we're not even going to try anymore. How's that? I, that might be
1: it. There it is. Um, all I know is that it it seems disturbing. I mean, I'm sure that this kind of thing happens, but these were like two in like two days. So I don't know that it's really a trend, but, um, you know, we both read transubstantiate and really liked it. Um, I've read part of stay God while we were doing the warmed and bound sessions. And it's on my list of things to get back to. Um, So, and I haven't gotten around to any of Mr. Teet's work outside of um, the warm bound story that he had, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's sad to see a publisher go,
2: especially when I know that they've published some pretty good stuff. So, yeah. And we talked a little bit about, you know, like, uh, you know, in an increasingly digital and prolific, well, prolifically digital, uh, uh, book world, is there just an oversaturation of indie publishers, you know, like, uh, that could be that could be part of it that could just be you know it could be they're closing for entirely different reasons but you never want to see the little guys go down no no unless it's what's his name from open casket <laughs> tony g how could you not remember his name yeah tony g he's actually uh, i heard he's joining trestle press mm-hmm. uh, just kidding but that was the other people that we were doing fishy stuff with books remember they were using non-copy or non-licensed copyright material for their book covers so yeah trestle press I, the, here's the the part that's hard to believe even after trestle press goes
1: and does that and and some of this i don't know because some i don't know if some of this is like the purchased stock photos or stock art or whatever but um just this past week j david osborne former um, guest on this show uh posted a, a link to something called treasure chest of horrors 2 or ii i'm not sure um, that is, at least in, in my opinion, um, a pretty, pretty blatant um, copy of his book. Um, by the time we leave here, we'll be friends.
2: It's astounding how similar they are. I mean, we'll post um, both covers on the website inside the post for the, the episode so that you could see them side by side. It's it's crazy how, I mean, it's the same image. It's a, they, the only way it's not the same image is if they printed it out traced the outline of it and then just kind of went in and did their own thing but like it's it's the same image yeah and that's like I said you know it's this isn't
1: two people had the same idea for a story and you wind up with um,
2: Pinocchio deep, killing vampires it, well, well
1: yeah well yeah or you know Armageddon and Deep Impact you know two movies that came out around the same time they're about the exact same thing you know mm-hmm. this looks to be you know the, the exact same thing now I don't know where where J. David Osborne got his image from, if it was a stock image, but his book's been out for a while, and this is a teaser cover for, you know, for for the book. So very obviously, one was out a long time before the other one was. It's, yeah. I guess the thing is, the point I was trying to make is with the trestle press type thing happening, like, don't you think people would be a little more diligent to not accidentally do this if that's the case and then obviously
2: not to purposely do it because you saw it killed an entire press you would think yeah and it's just got to be like i can't i have to say that in situations like this it's got to be more just negligence than like outright I, I okay now that i say that though it sounds ridiculous because like you have to be going out of your way to steal that image so i, I yeah i just don't understand it yeah it's interesting
1: yeah. i don't know I have take a look and see if uh Say like I said, you can go and get stock photography, and you pay like thirty bucks or twenty bucks. But then you know you can see it on a in an ad right next to
2: yours because someone else bought it for twenty bucks. So I don't know where (laughs) either one of those came from. Well, it's like that zombie on uh, the cover of Zombie Bake Off. Keaton was talking about. He saw it on a different. uh, It's like a stock footage or a stock not footage because that's film. A stock uh, image of a of a zombie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean that stuff happens, but like, yeah.
1: the thing is, if you're dealing with that type of thing, I don't know if I don't even know if there's a way to find out. Like, how would I find? So let's say I go onto a stock site and I find this picture of the guy with his head back and his throat having just been cut. And I go, this is perfect for my book. How do you find out that
2: someone else used it? I mean, unless unless you can get you'd have to see through that place who has licensed the image or whatever. But I, I have to imagine that you probably can't do that. I guess what it comes down to is hire your own
1: artist and hope they don't. Oh, hope they don't steal. So some of that could be like, hey, I outsource my covers.
2: Yeah, do that told guy me, all yeah, he's yeah. Doing.
1: So I pay this guy a hundred bucks for these great covers, and the guy's going and grabbing thirty dollars stock images from somewhere and going, here you go, perfect. <laughs> you know.
2: So, it's, yeah. Weird. Covers, man. Just don't don't make a cover. Yeah, that's the. Do. That's the only way that you could not get ripped off
1: every book i have just so i know it's it's gonna be like one of my fingerprints is gonna be the cover but like really (laughs) enlarged and then that way there's no way someone say i could say i stole it from them
2: wow i'm processing ideas over here buddy so (laughs) i'm gonna surreptitiously get all of your fingerprints and sell them to a stock photography site (laughs) oh god i was thwarted just to foil
1: you you want to talk about our very exciting next episode
2: Yeah, um, up next, um, we're reading a book called Invisible Monsters Remix by Chuck Palahniuk. Um, A little history that I have with this book is I tried to read the original Invisible Monsters on two or three separate occasions, and I couldn't get past about 37 pages. Um, So this is going to be interesting for me because I never actually read the entire original book, but I'm going in for the remix. Um,
1: I read and loved Invisible Monsters, so this was like an intervention. The only way I could get Rob to read this book is to promise um, that, you know, we're going to get an episode out of it, and more so that Caleb Ross is going to join us to co-review this book with us. Um, a remix. So what is a remix? I have no idea when it comes to a book. I did read a little bit about this, um, and basically I don't know if it's been reordered, but I know there's some bonus content that wasn't in the original one. And uh, from my understanding, it uh, gives you directions on what chapters to go to when you get to the end of certain sections. So this could be, uh,
2: seems like it'd be a little bit of flipping back and forth through this one. So what does that mean? That means I'm not reading it on my iPad. Livia says not reading it on his Kindle. Mm-hmm. We have only, we, we almost we almost pulled the trigger on Kindle copies on this one. And then I read a review
1: that said that uh, the technology in the Kindle doesn't lend itself to reading this book the way it's supposed to be read.
2: So paper copies you hear this that's pages you know that sounds like that sounds like a copy of invisible monsters remix that's exactly what it is <sighs> so good. all right so uh yeah check back for on the next episode for our review of invisible monsters remix and uh hear what it's like for me to finish an entire chuck Palahniuk book that i didn't want to read before Until next time I'm Olivia Snowden. Now I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading.
3: She has to discipline her body Because she knows that it's demand